My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. Number one is you can go to iTunes and simply write a brief review. It would really make a big difference. Number two is you can become a patron by making a donation on interviewthefuture.com. So for those of you who may have seen my interview with uh, Jenny Kleeman, who wrote a who wrote a very interesting book called uh, "Sex Robots and Vegan Meat," uh, you know that I had two most favorite quotes from that book, and one of those favorite quotes comes towards the end, and it's the following quote: "Coming up with technical fixes rather than ethical reform." revolution, rebellion, every time that technology tries to stand, it, to stand in for ethics, we do ourselves a disservice. We deny ourselves the opportunity for growth. End of quote. That's on page 298. And during my conversation with Jenny, I told her that I must bring that person to my show. Well, today we have that person, and it is Professor Matthew Cole. Matthew is a professor of sociology and author of a book called Our Children and Other Animals, and he is also the former chair of the Vegan Society. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Matthew. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I do have to quickly say that um, I'm, I'm a doctor, not a professor. <laughs> I know things are slightly, slightly different in North America, but... Um, You've just given me a big promotion there, which is wonderful. But well, in, the UK, in the UK, I'm not yet a professor. <laughs> okay. Are you a PhD in sociology? Yes. Yeah. So yes, yeah. doctor is my title. Right. Okay. So yeah. in North America here, we say professor, doctor. Yeah. I know it. it's more about having a tenured academic position is what you're trying to say here, right? Yeah. I mean, it's... People, when I interact with people in North America, they often, you know, address me as professor, like they write me an email, dear Professor Cole or something, and it makes me smile. Um, it's not a problem to me. I don't mind. But because technically speaking, in the UK, I'm, I'm not a professor. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm guilty of that mistake myself, because when I was inviting you to come on my podcast, I'm pretty sure I said Professor Cole. Um, yeah. And be, that's because you do teach criminology in the Open University there, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my current job is a uh, lecturer in criminology is my formal title. Yeah, but I, mm -hmm. I definitely do um, identify myself as a sociologist, I would say. So I'm now a sociologist working in a criminology and social policy department. But yeah, mm -hmm. to call me a sociologist is definitely accurate. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting and, and an important distinction. So I, I do wish you good luck with finding a tenure position as <laughs> soon as possible. Um, let me ask you then, forgetting the book that you wrote and, and all the, the short bio that I just kind of read here, if I were to meet you in a pub somewhere in the UK and <laughs> you know I didn't know the first thing about you and I ask you, who is Matthew Cole? How would you, interview, how would you introduce yourself? Oh, wow. Well, 
I, I guess um, these days my my academic identity has become the dominant one. You know, I mean, it's it's my work, of course, um, but that's that's very much connected to my identity as a vegan. I would say the two things have become merged in my life. Um, I was on the path towards becoming an academic. I guess doing my PhD, which I started. 20 years ago now and at that time I wasn't I wasn't yet vegan um, and I became vegan around the end of my PhD and my PhD was about a different topic um, and it was around that time when I went vegan I was thinking of I was thinking I needed something else to work on as a sociologist I needed some other interest because I didn't want to continue with my PhD research so it was through a conversation with a friend of mine at the time um, who just pointed out, well, there's lots of sociology and veganism, you know, why don't you do something with that? And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I should do that. So it was the, the personal decision to go vegan came first and then making that part of my academic work came later. So, so those two things are certainly really important in, in terms of who I am, I suppose, being a vegan and being a sociologist and then combining the two is, I suppose, what I've been doing for the last 15 years. So I guess, yeah, um, that might be a bit heavy if I just meet someone in the pub to say, yeah, I'm a vegan and a sociologist. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of me, I suppose. Yeah, that's... I guess fish and chips is out of the question. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> off, off the menu. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I know the feeling because it's out of the question for me. Uh, even though I did, before I went vegan about five years ago, I did enjoy fish and chips very much, actually, I have to say. Uh, even though it's not the best choice for, for my cholesterol, um, as someone who is predisposed to have high cholesterol as I am. Now, and which consequently dropped tremendously after I became vegan, uh, especially triglycerides. But Matthew, we are here today to talk about uh, veganism, ethics, and their implications with respect to technology in general, but also other related issues that are more common topics on my podcast, such as artificial intelligence and transhumanism, maybe towards the end of our conversation. But I want to dive into who you are and uh, what your work is. Uh, and sort of lay out the groundwork, which would then hopefully allow us to make connections to the rest of it, mm. the rest of the story I want us to, to, to tell here today. And so let me just begin with this uh, side kind of interesting, perhaps, or at least to me, interesting uh, uh, topic. What was your original PhD dissertation on? Uh, it was about unemployment. Um so a very traditional kind of sociological topic, really. Uh, and that was that was more of a, a biographical um, place that that came from, because I was unemployed for quite a long time in my um, late teens and early 20s. Mm -hmm. So I, I came to um, academia a little bit later in life, I guess. I didn't start my first degree until I was... 26 yeah 26 when i started 
So I had a bit of another life before then, I suppose, before I discovered sociology and everything changed. Um, so, yeah, so the PhD was was a lot of that was to do with reflecting back on those experiences and trying to make sense of them. Um, and coming across um, previous research in sociology, which I didn't feel captured the experience of being unemployed for me. It didn't resonate with my own experience. So as part of my PhD, of course, I would read the previous literature, previous research, a lot of it based on interviews with unemployed people. And the interpretations that were made of that experience just didn't, they didn't chime with me. So my PhD kind of mutated as it went along. I thought I was going to do something fairly traditional, do my own interviews and, you know, contribute to this well-established body of knowledge, but it ended up being something more critical of um, previous sociology, I guess. And in some way saying, I think there's been a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation maybe of, of what unemployment means. Um, and I suppose the key to my concern was that unemployment itself um, was kind of socially constructed by sociology itself, uh, reified, you might say, as, as this kind of um, state of being um, that has some kind of autonomous existence to it, some, some kind of reality to it. Whereas my perspective was it has no reality. It's a complete, it's a fiction. You know, it's a, it's a form of relation to a capitalist labour market that has no necessity to exist. So just for example, an alternative to the existence of unemployment could be a universal income. You know, there could be a universal income policy. Um, and by doing that, you could abolish unemployment as a category, as a social welfare category. So that's at least thinkable. So I thought that sociology had kind of forgotten that, really. And yeah, that was a problem for me. Mm -hmm. You know, in Canada, we're conducting now, just like in many other countries, we're conducting these sociological experiments on a large scale because uh, since the first wave of COVID, the Canadian government uh, has given a $2,000 monthly uh, uh, income to about seven and a half, eight million Canadians. Uh, it used to be called the CRB. That was for about six months. And then it became the CERB. Uh, which will continue until next summer, I think, for yeah. all of those who can kind of show that their uh, income has basically disappeared or they're, they're making a lot less than $1,000 a month due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So, so and, and, you know, 7, 8 million uh, Canadian uh, workers or people are using that program, that means... I don't know, 15, 20% almost, maybe not quite 20, but like 16, 17, 18% of the Canadian workforce are using that. So that's a large scale sociological <laughs> experiment with universal basic income at a pretty reasonable um, level. You know, $2,000 a month is not insignificant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention. So in these, um, extraordinary times we see you know in some ways uh, states edging towards that kind of idea because there's, there's no alternative um, many people simply cannot work or can't work safely of course um 
so so yeah so I, I thought and I suppose that that made me feel like um a little bit alienated I would say from the discipline in some ways um having this experience of not finding my own experience represented in the discipline that I kind of, you know, I, I did feel very strongly attached to when I first started learning about sociology as an undergraduate. And even before then, I thought this is fantastic. This this answers a lot of the questions I've always had. Um, since sociology does? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I reached that point where I thought, oh, actually, it doesn't have all the answers and there, and there are things missing here or things that it, it doesn't quite get right. Um, so yeah, so that gave me a, a motivation, I suppose, through my PhD, but I, I mean, to, to get to the end of the story, I suppose, um, it was the fact that it was so autobiographical for me. That's the reason I didn't want to continue with it because finishing that piece of research for me was like a closing a chapter because the experience of being unemployed wasn't, it wasn't great, but it wasn't all bad either. There were, there were definite advantages to it. Um, but I didn't want to just keep reliving that. <laughs> I didn't want a whole career talking about unemployment and endlessly reflecting back on a, a, you know, a fairly short part of my life, really. So, so I wanted to do something else, and and veganism was the just made sense. I can totally sympathize with that because you know, uh, my master's degree was uh, basically focusing on armed conflict, and you know, to be honest you can only read so many books about people killing other people on large scale and only watch so many documentaries, you know, from Auschwitz and, you know, usage of weapons of mass destruction and stuff like that before it starts getting to you and start getting depressed, you know, or mm. at least I did. I mean, some people have higher sort of resistance to this getting to them. They kind of are better at compartmentalizing. You know, I thought I could do that, but, but, you know, after doing the academic work for about three years or so, it really started getting me down. Mm. Uh, and so I was looking for a new field, new new place, new realm where I can sort of apply my interest in political science, in ethics especially. Mm. Uh, and and so I, I moved into kind of like the, the interplay between technology and ethics uh, in general, but specifically things such as artificial intelligence and then transhumanism and so on. And so here we are, both of us today. <laughs> but where does rock music come into that sort of period of your mm -hmm. life? Uh, because Jenny Kleeman, uh was a sort of like a, I don't want to say failed uh, rock band member, but, but kind of she's a very good author now and writer and journalist and all of that. So and she's clearly given up on, on the rock scene, at least for now. Where And I know you had a stint there in, in rock music, didn't you? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to. Um, uh, yeah, I will claim the identity of a, a failed musician, I would say. Uh, failed professionally, anyway. And that was certainly my first ambition before I got into um, sociology or anything like that. So, yeah, I was a guitarist in uh, a thrash metal band, just, uh, just a local... Just a local band. Wow. Um, we played a few local gigs, but uh, didn't get further than that. But it was, you know, it was a good band. I enjoyed it. And that was that was my main passion, I guess, through my teenage years. Was that a bass guitar 20s. or solo or what, what was it? 
Um, well, I started off on the bass actually for about three years, and then I I kind of um, I felt like a I needed a new challenge, I suppose, like because I started playing the bass as if it as if it was a lead guitar almost. I was, you know, starting to play lots of solos, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I moved on to guitar and played lead guitar. Um, and yeah, that was that was kind of all consuming for many years. I, I practiced hours a day, and that was one what I wanted to do. Um, so it was only when that didn't work. <laughs> eventually I thought I have to do something else. Um, and it was another, another friend, actually, I owe a lot to friends in my life. I have to say it was a, a, another friend said to me at the time, why don't you try doing sociology and psychology as well? I studied at the time, uh, neither of which I did before. We didn't do that at my school. So I didn't know anything about either of them. Um, and as soon as I started, I thought, yeah, this is, this is fascinating. This is, you know, and I was off on a different journey. So, I mean, I've never stopped playing the guitar. I still have several guitars and I still enjoy it. But, um, but yeah, didn't manage to make a career out of it. Tell me something Sadly, about I mean, the, the sociology of being a part of a thrash metal band, rock band, and being a vegetarian who eventually became vegan. Like, because here's the thing, uh, from my sort of ignorant, from the point of view, sociological uh, uh, view, uh, hard rock and especially heavy metal and especially thrash metal bands have this kind of a bad boy reputation. They drink more, they they play louder music, more angrier music. My wife, as my wife says, sometimes you, I hate listening when you're listening to your violent music because sometimes she gets in the <laughs> car and my music starts playing up suddenly when she starts the car, right? And I'm like, it's not violent music. It's actually very good music. But anyway, and, and so you have that reputation of them being hard parties, partying people, uh, drugs even, of course, uh, you know, loud music, uh, macho guys, supposedly. And then how do you fit as a, I, I think, were you vegetarian at that time already or that came later? Uh, not not quite. I, I went vegetarian when I was 23. Three, I think so that was when I was coming to the end of that period of my life um I was still playing in in I was playing in a different band by then but by then it would already become more of a hobby than a serious I'd already started to think well I don't think this is going to work by then so no I wasn't I'd, I'd been thinking about becoming vegetarian I guess before then but I hadn't got to that point um but I was definitely not a hard partying kind of a guy I was teetotal until I was 19 or 20 or something I didn't drink alcohol at all when I was in in the the main band that I was in um I think the other guys fu- found that a bit frustrating <laughs> they certainly they could certainly drink quite um effectively I caught up later <laughs> but yeah but like you were saying I think I mean for me yeah I, I totally get why people hear that kind of music and perceive it as violent but i think most people who are into it will say it's uh it's not like that it's more like it's cathartic it gets kind of feelings of aggression out of your system you know you you sort of burn off that energy through playing that music or listening to it so yeah we were all quite peaceful polite (laughs) polite young men really in the band yeah that's very different from the image of a thrash metal band. And I presume me yeah. and you are roughly the same age. So I presume that was somewhere around the 80s, maybe? 
Yeah, late 80s, early 90s, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, okay, because basically that's the time in the 80s in Bulgaria. I was growing up in Bulgaria, so I started first with Metallica, then went harder than that, you know, Megadeth, Anthrax, mm. Sodom, Venom, like, you name it, all those heavy heavy metal groups there yeah uh so <laughs> acdc was like yeah. the easy stuff compared to the yeah. other guys right the yeah. light stuff uh very okay. similar for me yeah sorry <laughs> very similar for me yeah i started with motorhead and then right metallica motorhead. and then yeah. yeah then metallica then slayer and megadeth and anthrax etc yeah that's right slayer yeah. was big in the 80s yeah yeah so so okay so so then you became vegetarian and eventually vegan so walk us through that story because i want to hear your personal story first and then see if and how it may be connecting to your academic research about the sociology of veganism hmm. so sure. so why you decide to become vegetarian when you did and why did you then be decide to become vegan when you did yeah, sure. Um, well, I think there was a lot. There were a lot of reasons why I went vegetarian originally. <clears throat> um, like I said, I had been thinking about it, but not seriously. It had been sort of at the back of my mind for a few years, maybe since I was about, excuse me, sixteen or seventeen, something like that. But at that time, I, I didn't know. I didn't know any vegetarians or vegans personally. I I must have met some, but I. I didn't I hadn't knowingly met anyone who was vegetarian or vegan. So it was like um another world to me at the time. So it was a, it was more of an abstract idea that seemed like the right thing to do. But I didn't sort of know how to do it, how I would go about it. Are we talking um, here late nineties, early two thousands or what? Well this this is late eighties when I first started having these ideas, I suppose. Wow. Um but but yeah I I it, it it was almost this sounds really strange now i mean the world has changed so much but thinking back then it it was almost unthinkable like to be vegetarian i just i didn't know how to do it what would that mean for my life i mean at, at the time i was living with my uh, dad just the two of us and um he had me when he was quite old older than i am now when he had me which still blows my mind <laughs> to think that. Um, and he, he came from quite a rural background. Um, and when he was growing up, uh, hunting was a normal part of his life. Fishing was a normal part of his life. So the idea of being vegetarian for him would be just completely alien. Well, it was completely alien. It just made no sense to him. So I remember now and again, I would, I would mention it and he, he was just, he couldn't comprehend it. It didn't make any sense. Um, so I suppose that made it easy for me to push it to the back of my own mind, you know, just for the sake of a normal life continuing such as it was at the time. But he, um, he died when I was 22. Yeah. 22. Um, and obviously at that point, a lot of things changed for me that threw a lot of things up in the air. Um, and that sort of coincided with me starting to realise that, okay, the musical career is not, not going to work out or it's not likely. So lots of things changed at the same time. And I think people who go through those kind of um, stages in life often 
there's a process of redefinition of yourself. And that's certainly something I went through at that time. And I think becoming vegetarian was part of that. It was a way of marking a break from this previous stage of my life. Um, being independent from my father, I suppose, for the first time. You know, suddenly I was living on my own um, for the first time. And also it coincided with me meeting my girlfriend of the time, who was a vegetarian. So she was actually, if I'm remembering this correctly, she was the first vegetarian I ever knew in my life. Um, which again sounds so strange now in 2020 to think that, but you know, before the internet and so on, it was a different world. Um, so that that made it very simple all of a sudden. So here was I, I'd had these vague kind of thoughts, and suddenly I'm with someone who has been vegetarian for quite a long time. To her, it's normal, it's easy, you know, there's no reason not to do it for myself. So I think within a short time of meeting her, I, I became vegetarian myself. Um, I went through that normal kind of process of learning how to cook, you know, how to look after myself as a vegetarian and so forth. And I don't know if, if veganism came up at the time or not. I think it probably did. Um, and I managed to rationalise not becoming vegan at the time which obviously now I regret, you know, I wish I'd gone vegan then. Um, but at the time, as is common, a very common experience, I was able to persuade myself that, oh, okay, free range eggs, that's not so bad, surely. And, you know, organic milk, that's okay, isn't it? So, I, you know, I, I turned a blind eye, you know, I didn't investigate what happens in the dairy industry. Um, and it was easy to do that. It's still easy to do that. That's still the norm is to ignore what happens in um, animal agriculture. You know, I, I have to say, I use the same justification for being a meat eater for, for a number of years. And my claim was like, so you're a vegetarian, but my I was a meat eater. And I, my claim was like, well, you see, I'm trying to buy free range, organic, grass-fed beef, you know, uh, uh, free range uh, chicken, uh, you know, eggs, all, all of that, like milk, organic milk. But so it's okay to have not only eggs, but also, you know, I tried to get, to eat wild fish instead of farmed fish, you know. Yeah. So I went with that for maybe two or three years. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very similar process, really. So, um, so I guess I, <clears throat> I had a kind of a line that I drew in my own mind any, anyway, being naive as I was about the dairy and egg industries, which was about killing. So I thought, okay, I don't want to be responsible for animals being killed. So I stopped wearing leather, for example, as part of my, so my own vegetarianism meant getting rid of my leather jacket, which is, you know, part of my uniform as a, <laughs> a member of a thrash metal band. And fake leather jackets were not so easy to come by then, certainly too expensive for me. Um, and I got rid of any clothes I had made of wool, that kind of thing. So I was so on the edge of being a vegan, you know, I really, I should have been vegan. The logic of my own position meant I should have been vegan, but I was able to um, deny certain inconvenient aspects that, um, that enable me to be a vegetarian rather than a vegan. So that carried on for Oh, I don't know. I guess about seven years like that, more or less. I mean, it's a long time ago now, so you know, I can't 
reconstruct my thinking entirely from that period. So you've been vegan and vegetarian, or at least vegetarian for 20 years, it seems, because you've been vegan for 12, 13. Yeah, well, I've been vegan now for nearly 16 years. Oh, 16, okay. So and that I was vegetarian. I was older, okay. Yeah, and I was vegetarian for about, I think, oh, let me do the maths, about 12 years before that. So I've been veg vegetarian or vegan for... Th uh, 27 years, that's it. Wow. Yeah, 27 years, yeah. Wow. So over half my life now. Wow. So, yeah, so I, I carried on like that for a long time, and then I got to the year 2000, and that's when I started thinking about veganism much more seriously. Um, and I, I From sociological I, and scientific point of view, not only from the personal point. No, this was still purely personal at this stage. So this was this was during my master's degree. Okay. In the year 2000, I was still studying sociology. So I finished my first degree. Then I moved to a new town, moved to London. Um, my relationship ended with that partner. And I guess it was another period of reinvention for me, I suppose, in some ways. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I did I did become vegan um, and I didn't stick with it. I, I went back to being vegetarian after about a year. Um, and... I mean, I f and I felt really bad about that decision. That was like a shameful, a shameful thing for me. Um, and it didn't last that long. Well, three or four years, I suppose, um, before I went vegan again and for the final time. So that first time I tried it, it was a bit like being in that early position of, of not yet being vegetarian. I, I didn't know any vegans at that point. Uh, I was in a new environment. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing on a practical point of view. You know, I didn't know how to cook vegan. I'd been so used to being a vegetarian, relying on eggs and cheese a lot, as a lot yeah. of vegetarians do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I found myself feeling quite, you know, not great health-wise because I was eating really badly. Mm -hmm. I was eating a lot of junk food, mm -hmm. convenience food. Beer and so chips. About, <laughs> yeah, lots of chips, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, white bread, you know, bad stuff. A really bland, boring diet, you know. Um, so I felt myself not not feeling great, you know, physically, I suppose, um, and lapsed back gradually into being vegetarian, uh, which is a more familiar pattern. And then moving again after my master's degree, um, I was in a place where finally I, I, I became aware of a sort of vegan subculture um, around where I was. And of course the internet was taking off. So it, was, it suddenly became a lot easier to find out about veganism, to connect with vegan organizations, you know, to find websites. Um, yeah, it was just a lot easier. So the second time I went vegan, the, the final time, um, I got to a point, again, talking to another friend, the same friends who convinced me that there was sociology related to veganism. So we were both vegetarians at the time. And she was asking me about what, why would I go vegan? Cause I, I suppose I must've been telling her about how I, I, I tried being vegan for a year or something. So she was curious and I said all the reasons about, you know, animal exploitation and all of that. And I just, at the end of that conversation, I thought, well, I have to do it. I can't <laughs> be making these arguments for veganism to someone else and not do it. It's just, 
it's just hypocritical for me it was so um yeah i became vegan the next day yeah literally the next day i cleared all my cupboards of anything not vegan you know toiletries food cupboards everything uh, and that was it and haven't looked back since so it took a long time to get there which i can't help but regret but that's what happened <laughs> well um, our journey is our journey so maybe we didn't get to where we we wish we we, we were at, at an earlier point of our lives but that's part of the journey you know so hmm. I, i've learned not to kind of uh, myself for myself i've learned not to kind of judge myself too harshly yes hmm. i wish i was more proactive and became vegan 20 years before that but and you know uh it is what it is. I can't change the past. So I try mm. to bring in my stoic philosophy and say, just focus on, on what you can do and what's under your control. And the past is certainly not. So absolutely. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about the definition of veganism here, though, because that's important if we are talking about uh, being vegan. And mm. maybe we can, you can even bring the distinction uh, and I think most people would know it, but still, let's bring the, the definition of veganism and, and perhaps the distinction or differentiation from vegetarianism here. Uh, because one thing I've learned after talking about AI with 250, 60 people is that much of the time, if not all of the time, people have a different definition of the subjects we're talking about. And so mm -hmm. they end up talking past each other. Yeah. And so... Uh, it's very important to make sure we're on the same page with the definition. So let's let's do that. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, it is really important. I think what we've seen a lot in recent years is that there's been a kind of slippage around veganism, um, and it it's become um, it for a lot of people now it means a plant based diet. Basically, it means following a plant based diet. But for me, that's only one. It, of course, it's very important, but it's only one component of being vegan, of what veganism is. And for me, veganism is um, the the kind of lived practice of opposing the exploitation of other animals in whatever form that takes. And obviously, the biggest form, quantitatively speaking, is through animal agriculture. So, of course, a plant-based diet is a crucial, essential component of being vegan. But there's there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so, yeah, and any ways in which other animals are exploited is uh, is not vegan, I would say. So whether that be animal experimentation or using animals for sport or entertainment, um, you know, all of these things, hunting, ob obviously, um, all of that is important. Um, and it also includes, of course, destroying the habitats of free living animals through human activities um all of those kind of things as well are problematic so what what i think what that means is that and this was certainly part of my own journey towards veganism it was always about that holistic kind of experience so i think like a lot of people who go vegan you do you can't help but focus on food a lot because that is part of your daily experience so you have to do that to continue living you have to focus on okay how do i do this how do i look after myself in a plant-based diet but it was never only about that it was about everything so like i said i went through all my uh, toiletries and so on and i checked okay is this um 
uh, no animal products and also is the no animal testing involved in this product um, if I'm not sure about that I'm going to get rid of it and I'm going to educate myself and you know replace things or do without things or whatever same with clothing and um, I mean I never did things like uh, bet on dog racing or something like that but I certainly <laughs> wouldn't do it you know that's not vegan either you know so it extends to a lot of things um, all these ways in, ways in which humans uh, exploit animals. So that's what it's about for me. It's this opposition to exploitation. Um, and in that, I, I've for a long time been quite inspired by the first definition of veganism provided by the Vegan Society way back in, I think, 1951 or 52, something like that. And that first definition, I'm going from memory here. I don't have it written down. It was something like, um, uh, the, the doctrine of living without exploiting animals, something like that, is a very short one-sentence definition. Um, and I thought that's fantastic. And, you know, I slightly regret that the Vegan Society moved away from that definition over the years, and uh, now it has a longer definition, which yeah. certainly goes beyond plant-based diets, but it's a, I, I think it loses something by seeming to overcomplicate it. I think that one sentence was fantastic. Yeah, I have to agree with you because that's the original sentence. Uh, but I'm looking at the Vegan Society definition right now as we speak, and it's probably a whole paragraph, like six lines on my computer, and I have a pretty big screen. Uh, and it goes like this. Veganism is a philosophy and a way of living which seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practicable all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose, and by extension promotes the development of the development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefit of animals, humans, and the environment. In dietary terms, it denotes the practice of dispensing with all products derived wholly or partially from animals. So it, it's a good definition, but I agree with you. I, I tend to like much more succinct definitions because I think the the longer we go, uh, th there is loss. The, the the more vague it becomes. Uh, mm. Instead of people try to to go longer because it thinks it would be clearer, but I think sometimes uh, it, it often works the other way around. Um, so perhaps now is the time, since you used to be the, the, the former chair of the Vegan Society, maybe now is the time to give us a, a, a brief history lesson about the origins of the Vegan Society and Donald Watson's role and other people that you want to bring in, perhaps, just so that we get the benefit of that story in our conversation. Sure, yeah. Um, gosh, where, where can I begin? Well, I mean, the... the the Vegan Society has a an interesting backstory, I would say, um, within the the UK vegetarian movement. Um, so within within that vegetarian movement, there were vegans before the word vegan existed. So there were people practicing a vegan lifestyle for sure, um, and there was some debate amongst uh, vegetarians in the UK. I'm sure elsewhere as well, but you know this is how veganism came to be invented was in this UK context as a, a term. Um, there were these debates about things like the dairy industry in particular, you know, is, should that be acceptable? And obviously for a lot of people, no was the answer. 
So how should the vegetarian movement respond to that? And in those early days um, before, well, between World War One and Two, I guess, this um, debate was going on and before, but this is when it became really um, intense. Um, the vegetarian society wasn't hot hospitable to the idea of creating a separate section within itself for these non-dairy vegetarians, if you like. And that became the sort of push for some of these um, early vegans to uh, set up their own society and come up with a new name to describe the practice. Um, so that was the impetus for it, I guess. And there were, you know, several really important um, figures in the early time Donald Watson is, is the name that, that kind of is the most well-known for a number of reasons. Um, one of the really important reasons is that he did a lot of the early practical work of setting up the vegan society and keeping it going. So he did the actual work of writing a lot of the early um, publications of the society, their early newsletter, and then their early magazines, and also printing them. You know, he had a duplicating machine at home where you'd have to turn a handle to, you know, make the um, the paper come out. And he'd be filling envelopes and posting them out to members of the new vegan society all over the country. So, so the society started in 1944 in the UK. Um, and uh, it was run mostly by Donald Watson um, in his home in Leicester in the UK. And the word vegan was coined by Donald and Dorothy, his um, future wife. And there's a, a pretty cool story about this, I think, which we, when I say we, I mean me and my partner, Kate Stewart, who's another sociologist and vegan, and we work together a lot on our writing. So as part of some research we've been doing, we've um, been given access to an archive of Donald Watson's uh, letters that he left behind he passed away in 2005 and in one of these letters that he wrote he tells this story of how him and Dorothy invented the word vegan on a night out in Leicester so they were on a night out to a local dance hall um you know enjoying themselves talking about these new new ideas what are we going to call this thing and between them they came up with the word vegan um and that's that's the story which I think is so cool that um that we now know that publicly because this, you know, this hadn't come to the light before. It wasn't like a published story as far as I'm aware. Um, so, yeah, so that happened in the 1940s. The society was established in 1944. Um, and Donald Watson was really, really important for the first uh, several years, keeping it going, doing a lot of this practical work. And then he uh, gradually stepped away from it and other people, you know, took on a more prominent role and kept the society going. I can't tell the whole history of the society because it's, uh, you know, there's a lot to say there. But I think it's fair to say that it, it struggled a lot um, for decades because it was purely voluntary. There were no paid members of staff. You're relying on a lot of goodwill. You're relying on people having enough time, um, fundraising to keep things going. So I think there were quite a few times when it nearly ceased to exist and stopped publishing its magazine. Um, but, it, you know, it kept going and, as we know by now, has flourished, um, especially in recent years. You know, it's taken off as veganism is taking off um, in many ways. So, yeah, and, and 
part of this early process when you uh, come up with this new word to explain this new practice or not a new practice to put a name to this existing practice and try and differentiate it from vegetarianism um very shortly after that this process of debate um was undertaken within the society about how are we going to define it you know that was an important part of the early work okay we we think it means vegetarianism plus not consuming eggs and dairy you know for instance that was the, that was the big issue at the time but how how can we define it and explain it to people and i think it's that process that led to that first definition which we were talking about um a few minutes ago and that became the official definition and then it you know it's changed a few times over the years um and generally got longer yeah as you were saying let me ask you this uh some people say that veganism is probably the fastest growing social movement uh is it this and, and others say oh no that's just uh, you know a diet or something like that so you're a sociologist is it a social movement and is it true to say it's the fastest growing social movement well i i i can't answer the second question because i, I don't know because i'm not a a sociologist of social movements as such so that you know there are other sociologists who are more expert in that um so that's kind of out, outside my expertise really i think it certainly is fair to call it a social movement um and i think as with probably every social movement you have fractures fragmentation you have external forces appropriating veganism co-opting veganism undermining veganism lots of complex stuff going on so it's very difficult to speak of one unified vegan movement i think i think you could have said that in the early years because it was a relatively small number of people and they did share you know a lot of common goals and a shared vision but over time of course people have different ideas about what the focus should be and that's certainly the case now um but i do think there is still a very clear focus among a significant proportion of people who identify as vegans on not that early definition as such but the spirit of that definition i think that still motivates a great number of vegans this general mission to oppose and ultimately overthrow replace exploitation with a more peaceful way a more compassionate way of living with other animals um but then around that you you do have this increasing focus on plant-based diets um which is not necessarily a bad thing of course as such but i think the risk is if that if that comes to be seen as what veganism is all about then a lot of other important things get lost and if the reasons for pursuing a plant-based diet are ultimately anthropocentric then it's entirely possible that we can continue exploiting other animals for all kinds of other reasons that are unrelated to diet and they don't necessarily get disturbed or or critiqued through that process so it's you know it's insufficient um in terms of whether it's the you know the fastest growing like i'm saying i'm not i mean you know i don't know enough about social movements but certainly my feeling is that the growth is rapid um quite sudden 
I wouldn't say it's unexpected because I've I've thought ever since I became vegan and started thinking about it sociologically that veganism is such a good idea that it's entirely possible that at any moment in history it could be like that and things could change very fast. I've always felt that. Um, I mean, we, you know, we're getting into other areas of sociology perhaps now thinking of, um, cause what I'm thinking of some of the barriers that prevent or attempt to prevent veganism taking off, which are, are certainly very significant, but yeah, it's, it's always been ready to go. You know, it's right back in 1944, it was ready. Um, Isn't that absolutely amazing? You're sharing with us, and, and I agree with you that, like in the '90s, there was hardly any literature. You couldn't meet anyone who is vegetarian, let alone vegan. Uh, but imagine the '90s, and then imagine World War II, 1944, and yet hmm. there were people who were vegan. And and as you said, even before that, the debates within the the, the whole sort of UK vegetarian society between vegetarians and non-dairy vegetarians, as they were referred to as sometimes. Mm. Uh, so that's even th more pioneering than, than, than that. It's, it's like crazy. Mm. And now it's actually become so easy because there's so many easy vegan replacements, vegan milks, uh, you know, explicitly vegan brands and restaurants and like McDonald's and Burger King and all those fast food restaurants are going vegan with some of their meals, for God's sake, right? So it's like we're talking at the whole other level of convenience and awareness today. Mm -hmm. And which brings me to uh, one area where you are actually an expert in, and that's the perception of veganism in the media. Because mm -hmm. like part of that, you know, meteoric or explosive growth of veganism is the coverage of veganism in media. Mm. So so tell us about how's that work? What's the general media image of veganism? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it masculine? Is it feminine? What can we learn from that whole thing? Sure. Um, well, here I think we can see some positive changes starting to happen, but it's from a very negative base, I would say. So when I started researching this, um, Systematically, I suppose I could say, um, with uh, um, a colleague, Karen Morgan, um, another sociologist. Um, we, in particular, looked at the coverage of veganism in newspapers in the UK. This is back in 2008, we began this research because, you know, as vegans ourselves, we experience a lot of kind of negative opinions around veganism and. Certainly at that time, we got this general sense that it was a kind of hostile cultural atmosphere around veganism. But as good sociologists, we wanted to test that out. You know, your anecdote is not good enough. So when we did this research, certainly we found that um, we were right. <laughs> our, our hunches were correct, that the, the coverage of veganism was overwhelmingly negative um, in UK newspapers at that time. So there were a whole bunch of anti-vegan stereotypes that were really, really commonplace um, and almost no what we categorized as positive coverage of veganism. And by positive coverage, we, we meant something quite modest, really, which is just um, explaining the reasons for veganism. 
something that's simple. So not even saying veganism is great or a good idea or go vegan, not even that level, but just even this is why you might consider going vegan because of, you know, animal exploitation or, you know, environmental reasons or whatever. Can you give us the negative image uh, compared to that? Like, because there's a lack of positive image and your Mm. very modest way of measuring that is helpful here. But what's kind of the negative representation that you found the most predominant features of that perhaps? Yeah, I think, yeah, well, we, we did come up with a bunch of categories again, as sociologists like to do. And we came up with six different stereotypes that were the most common in newspapers and I'm going off the top of my head now. So the most common one we saw was uh, simply ridiculing veganism and ridiculing vegans. So just saying things like, um, you know, of course, this is a, a crazy idea. Why would anyone do this? Um, and what's behind that is this assumption that the newspapers are addressing a non-vegan audience. They are writing for non-vegans. So if you're reading this as a vegan, straight away, you're alienated from this um, discourse. Um, and after that flat out ridiculing of vegans, uh, you have this idea that veganism is impossible, like practically impossible. Um, so you get coverage that gives the impression that you just can't do it. Like on a day to day basis, how can one possibly live as a vegan? You know, it's, it's just forget about it. It's too hard. Um, and our interpretation of that is it's partly, a way to make people feel more comfortable with not being vegan. It's like, okay, yeah, it's too hard. The newspaper's telling me it's too hard. I thought it's probably too hard. Okay, I'll forget about it. Maybe it's a nice idea, but no, I won't go there. Um, And then alongside that, you get this idea that vegans are in some ways special in terms of being really focused on denying ourselves pleasure in some way, like, Given this idea that like plant-based diets, for example, are just unpleasant, you know, the food's horrible, um, there's limited choice or whatever it might be. Boring. Boring, yeah, boring, very common one, bland food. So to be vegan, you've got to have some kind of, you know, incredible strong will to, <laughs> to eat this terrible food. Of course, my, my first experience of vegan was terrible. So, you know, but that was my own lack of understanding of uh, all the great things I could do. Um, So there's that one. And I'm probably going to forget one. The idea that veganism is a fad, that it's just something like a phase people go through, like a teenage. uh, um, Coming uh, of age. Yeah, like a coming of age thing. And then you grow out of it sort of thing. Rebellious kind of, you know, anti-establishment period of our lives. Yeah. And that's that's very much connected with um, coverage of celebrity vegans, what we might call celebrity vegans, and especially this kind of celebratory coverage of when a famous vegan stops being vegan. So then the newspapers were like, oh, all over that. It's like, see, we told you it was impossible. This famous person says they've stopped being vegan. That proves it. So there's some of that going on. Um, The idea that vegans are uh, sentimental was another one, a fairly common one. So this idea that, um, you know, this there's something to do with eating meat in particular um, that's somehow connected to understanding the reality of nature as being, you know, fundamentally violent. 
unequal, the survival of the fittest and all that kind of idea. And this notion that somehow vegans are disconnected from this fundamental truth and that we're all, you know, completely naive about the way the world works. That's a common one, which is a really strange one, I think. Uh, and then the last one, if I've remembered them all, is this idea that vegans are hostile, that in some sense we are extremists and that we're out to cause uh, social disorder um, through various forms of activism or um, just through breaking social norms. So it's quite a powerful collection of um, <laughs> stuff to contend with. Uh, and Where if does femininity come here? Because there's also femininity, masculinity play here. Yeah. You know, that sure. you're not man enough. You're not a macho guy. You're mm. not like man's man unless you have a steak stuffed in your mouth. Oh, you, yeah. You know, so, and, and the vegans are kind of sissies, skinny and kind of feminine weaklings who yeah. surely are not good at sports. They're kind of artsy and nerdy with glasses and everything. They can't do sports, let alone martial arts or anything like that. Totally not. Yeah. Or weightlifting or any other like seriously demanding athletic activity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that, that's been there since forever. Um, I mean, one of the ways that played out in particular in, in, in this piece of research was with this um, uh, idea of vegans being sentimental that's very much a feminized stereotype. Um, it's a sexist stereotype at the same time as being an anti-vegan stereotype. So often you would have uh, women vegans being kind of singled out in newspaper coverage and portrayed as if they, you know, they, they are naive and uh, overly emotional. And again, they don't understand the reality of um, nature being red in tooth and claw and that kind of idea. The rational man eats steaks. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, you know, many other people have researched this. Uh, Carol Adams is probably a name you, you're aware of. Um, if any listeners aren't aware, if you look up Carol J. Adams, you can find out a lot more about her work. The Sexual Politics of Meat is her most famous book, which has been reprinted many times. And she um, gets right into that whole issue of how a particular form of masculinity is very much associated with red meat eating in particular. Um, yeah, so there's that whole aspect of it as well. But one thing I want to add to that um, is that what we thought was perhaps the most surprising thing of all, we sort of expected these stereotypes would be there, maybe not to this extent. But what did surprise us was that veganism was disconnected from animals. And we found that really strange. So even all these negative stereotypes they were, they're focused on vegans ourselves, um, and it's almost as if that's being done in order to not talk about other animals. So there's this disconnection. So we, we kind of went in expecting we'd see negative coverage of, say, um, animal rights activists and saying, you know, they're hostile or something. And, and yes, that coverage is there, but it was disconnected from veganism. So if you, if you have coverage of animal rights activism, well, in the sample we looked at, you wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be discussed that they were vegan, if you see what I mean. They were separated out. Mm -hmm. and, and we thought that was actually um, quite significant because what it meant was that uh, when readers were experiencing this discourse about veganism, they weren't ever really being confronted 
with the motivation for veganism, the reason for veganism, the reason why it exists in the first place, which is all about opposing animal exploitation. And we do, we do know from lots of research that um, although there are a range of motivations for being vegan, uh, animal rights, to use that as a sort of catch-all term, is, if not the most important, one of the most important um, and has been since as long as veganism existed. And often when people go vegan for whatever reason, that becomes part of the reason. So even if people start following a plant-based diet for personal health, it's common that people then start to learn more, read more, and they keep adding more reasons for being vegan and, you know, makes it a more kind of stable identity, I suppose. So that was kind of written out of the picture in this um, negative coverage, which we, yeah, that did surprise us. And that made it seem um, far worse, really, because anti-vegan stereotypes are, you know, annoying and unpleasant. Sometimes they might be harmful, perhaps, depending on the extent and the consequences of them. But they're, they're nowhere near as serious as what happens to animals themselves. And that's that's why we're doing it. You know, well, speaking for myself, that's why I'm vegan. That's what's important to me. I don't really care if people make fun of me for being a vegan. But I do care if in the process of making fun of me, other people might be dissuaded from being vegan themselves and therefore, you know, losing that opportunity to um, assist this movement movement to grow more quickly and, um, and, and be of assistance to animals more quickly. So that's where we thought that was serious, a serious problem. So how do we explain if there was this kind of pre prevalent negative image in the media? How do we explain then that despite that fact, still veganism is explode, exploding everywhere, not only in the UK, but North America, even in the second and third world, like it's, it's really everywhere. It's like unbelievable. You know, six years ago, my most, so, so far, my most impressive vegan restaurant I've ever been to and the most amazing and delicious vegan meal I've ever had was, for example, in Moscow. Uh, and, and I was shocked and surprised to find that because me and my wife did about two weeks traveling in, in, in Russia, probably five or six years ago. Well, no, three or four years ago, I think. And we were a little concerned because, you know, we were going to all kinds of places and we were a little concerned with like being able to, to find uh, vegan meals everywhere we went, but we never had a problem once. Uh, and as I said, we were amazed, especially in a place like Moscow, we were amazed of the options and how good and easy that is. And it's even like world quality. It's like one of the best, the best I've had at least. Right. So how do we explain those two things? Like on the one hand, it's exploding everywhere. On the other hand, it had these negative images and, and elements associated with it. Mm. I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think there's a lot there's a lot that's gone on there to, to produce that change. Um, I think one one thing about the negative coverage itself is that the effects aren't always negative or aren't necessarily negative um, because I think what you will often find is that 
the public who are consuming these discourses, they're not always going to be convinced by them. And, and you can see this in many social movements. If you see an anti-feminist backlash, which you you know keeps recurring, of course, there are many people who read that kind of stuff and they're not going to be convinced. They're not going to say, oh yeah, feminism, that's a terrible idea. They're going to read that and say, this is a reactionary backlash. So I'm going to disidentify from the backlash and identify with feminism. So it can even have the, you know, a perverse effect, if you like, of pushing people in the opposite direction to the intention of the negative stereotype. And so even though the stereotypes were negative, the, the sheer volume of coverage was increasing all the time. So the piece of research I've been talking about was just a snapshot of one year. But if you take a longer term view and you look at the coverage of veganism over decades, you see this incredible, you know, a curve. You can see that on the camera, you know, very steep and get, getting steeper all the time, year on year. Um, and we haven't published research on this, but we hope to at some point is to take this sort of longer term view. So just the fact that it becomes more part of everyday discourse, even if the coverage is negative, some people are going to see that. And as I say, disidentify from the negative coverage, but also be curious. Okay, what is this thing that's I'm noticing more and more? And they can find out. And of course, these days, it's a lot easier to find out through the internet and so forth. But also, of course, all through this time, um, vegans have been working really, really hard, doing doing their best against, you know, a lot of obstacles to promote veganism through all the kind of grassroots work that's familiar across lots of social movements, you know, protesting, um, holding uh, festivals and fairs, uh, street stalls, you know, delivering leaflets, publishing magazines, creating websites, recipe blogs, you know, taking cakes into work, you know, all the kind of um, everyday practices that vegans do, as well as the more kind of um, scaled up forms of activism, if you like. All of that has been going on. And of course, many, many vegans have made veganism their their livelihood by starting vegan restaurants or all kinds of vegan companies, uh, or indeed trying to get an academic career <laughs> based on veganism, as I've had. Um, and I'm certainly not alone in that. And that's that's been a really welcome change that I've noticed in the, in the last few years is lots and lots of vegan academics in sociology and uh, beyond um, doing work on veganism, which is very exciting. So I think there's a lot of things have gone into that. Um, it's no matter how strong the opposition is, it's it's impossible to suppress knowledge about veganism these days or to hide it effectively or to deny it you know vegans are very vocal have access to to the tools to disseminate information so yeah i think that you know the lid is coming off as it were uh maybe i don't know if this is the the best time to bring this in but i watched uh one of your previous presentations, and you were talking about a breaching experiment. Uh, can you perhaps uh, walk us through what is a breaching experiment and give us an example and how it is relevant to our conversation here, perhaps? Um, sure. I don't remember what presentation that was from, but um, 
I mean, in general terms, a breaching experiment means to sort of um, to break a social convention of some kind um, and see what the consequences are. And the consequences reveal a lot about the function of that social convention. Um, so this was something that was done by um, sociologists, you know, decades ago, just to sort of test out how do people function in terms of day to day interactions and what happens if you disturb that even in quite small ways. I don't mean um, acts of violence or anything, but, you know, a classic one is to maybe hold someone's gaze on the street an instant longer than would be conventionally normal. And what happens? People become uncomfortable very quickly. They'll perceive it as threatening in some way. I don't recommend anyone does this, but you can do it as a thought experiment because we're aware ourselves, if we feel ourselves being looked at for a second or two longer than normal, we'll start thinking, why Why is that happening? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, forgive me, I can't remember the context that I was talking about that in, in a presentation, but that's the general idea of what a breaching experiment would be. So is, is it a breaching experiment, for example, when, uh, let's say, me and my wife were going to her family's Thanksgiving reunion, and she's an Italian Catholic, um, sort of like from an Italian Catholic family. And it's sort of like North American Italian Catholic family. So it's very heavy meat uh, kind of focused. So, you know, turkey or in the summer steaks and burgers all the time, multiple times. Um, you know, bacon and eggs and stuff. So let's say, is it a bridging experiment when me and my wife sit on the Thanksgiving dinner and we're vegan and everyone around us is like heavy, heavy meat eater. Or even like in another way, when you were a, sort of a teenager in that rock band and you were the only non-drinker in an environment when everyone is a heavy drinker. Isn't that not another example of a breaching experiment? It was, it was certainly conflicting with the social norms, yeah. To be a non-drinking guitarist in a thrash metal band, I think I was alone. Um, I don't I don't know if it would constitute a breaching experiment. I mean, a breaching experiment tends to be something that you do that you would do sort of deliberately um, almost almost sort of provocatively, I would say. Whereas if if you're I mean, certainly if you're a vegan attending uh, some kind of, you know, function, some kind of meal where consuming animal products is the norm, yes, you are you are breaching social norms. I don't know if it fits with breaching experiment, but I'm getting bogged down in, you know, the jargon of sociology here. <laughs> yeah, no, the but, point I'm trying to bring here is that, that, that there's that kind of a peer pressure, hmm. sociological pressure issue here that, you know, you faced when, when you were non-drinking in a thrash metal band. Uh, and, you know, my experience, <coughs> which is much, much shorter than yours, obviously, being a vegan, is that... Being a vegan, the biggest cost of being a vegan for me so far has been this kind of a social, at mm. best case scenario, socially awkward moments. And mm. at worst case scenario, like moments where you could have some kind of level of uh, sort of a confrontation even, mm. uh, if you will. Even if like, let's say, we're not like at the pro proselytizing kind of vegan level and we're not pushing others aggressively to you know don't eat this and don't do that but we're kind of like quietly just saying that we're vegan sometimes it can provoke 
kind of an aggressive reaction. But even in the mm -hmm. best case uh, scenarios, when you're just like with a bunch of friends or a very close family, it still does create a lot of friction and there's costs, you know, oh, but you're vegan, we have to figure out what to do for you and, and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And that creates certain kind of, you know, uh, friction and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I was getting bogged down in the terminology. I apologize for that a breaching experiment. But no, you're absolutely right. And I think the, I mean, the the early vegans, if I can call them that, in the, you know, through the 40s and 50s, this was a big concern of the vegan movement. Imagine um, for because, them, it must have been awful. Like if it's hard, even today in that sense, that's my biggest cost. Like, cause convenience yeah. now is like not an issue. It's so easy. There's tons of literature. You can educate yourself how to cook. That's all, we've overcome that. To me, it seems right now the last kind of big impediment is, or the, the major impediment that we have to overcome is this kind of social issue, especially in traditional societies or, uh, or, or families where you have the ritualistic consumption of animal-based foods uh, mm. on any major occasion, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and so on and so on. Yeah. No, no, I completely agree with you. This this is a, a huge issue, and and that was recognised right from the beginning. So even when veganism was a lot less convenient than it is now, it was still recognised then that the social impact was much more difficult at that time, more difficult to overcome, to cope with on on a on a sort of personal level. What do you do if people around you are suspicious or? hostile or feel threatened or whatever it might be or any combination of that and i think that's still the case and and still a lot of people who go vegan even if on a practical level it's straightforward coping with these social issues is still a big deal and especially if um if you feel isolated and you may well even if you're connected through the internet or whatever you could be isolated within your household within your family um you know, if one partner is not vegan. That's um, a big issue, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, there, you know, all kinds of power dynamics can come into play there that obviously happen in families, mm -hmm. um, within couples, between parents and children, all, all of that kind of thing. That is, a, that is a big issue. And I think this is where, you know, social support is really, really important. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, underestimate the significance of that because... I think, well, on the one hand, I, I do agree with you that it's absolutely a lot easier than it's ever been. But I think there still are a lot of structural barriers to veganism within the way society is organized. So, of course, not everybody has equal access to uh, to a healthy plant-based diet. Probably everybody pretty much can access unhealthy plant-based food because that's everywhere, like you were saying, chips. Um, but getting, you know fresh fruit and vegetables and whole grains and all of that is, is still not straightforward for everybody by any means. So there is still a lot of work to be done there. But even if that is available, um, the social issues can be, you know, very, very difficult indeed, very challenging. I mean, for me personally, I, I feel very lucky in lots of ways that I didn't, I didn't really have that in my own life. I think because I was um, living alone, I guess, when I made these changes that that makes it very very simple there was no one to negotiate with about that no one who was being upset or threatened by me on a day-to-day -day basis within my home 
Um, but I certainly know plenty of vegans who have been through that process. And I mean, there is published research on this as well about um, the difficulties that vegans encounter socially and also the awareness that that you may well be stigmatized for being vegan. And that can be a factor that counts against your decision to go vegan. You, you may think, well, it's just going to be too difficult for me. It's going to be too unpleasant, not in terms of eating food or whatever, but in terms of people's reactions. <clears throat> so, and again, I think this is quite a common thing that people will delay going vegan until say they leave the parental home, for example, or until a relationship ends or whatever. You no, know, this is, I think the moment where we kind of slowly or should kind of go into sort of how all these ideas that we've been laying the groundwork for with respect to veganism actually relate to the usual topics I cover here, which are transhumanism, artificial intelligence and technology. And speaking exactly on what you're just saying, I meet a lot of transhumanists uh, who are totally sold on the logic behind the idea of being vegan. They get it. Here's where they fail to make that step. So you're giving an example of like, you know, my when my partner is ready or all those other things. But the transhumanist example that I meet the most is like, well, I'll be vegan when we have lab grown meat, you know. Uh, so that's kind of like a classic transhumanist response. How do you feel about that? Well, disappointed <laughs> is my first, my first response to that. I think, um, yeah, I don't know where I can begin with that really. Um, <laughs> because if, if you, as, as you say, if you're sold on the logic of it, if you're convinced by the, the reasoning for veganism, and the fact is it is so much simpler now for a great many people. I can't think why you wouldn't do it unless there is some kind of incredible social barrier in, in your life that, that maybe there is some, you know, people in your family would be outraged and ostracize you or something, which I'm, you know, that happens, but, I, I don't imagine that's really the reason behind many of the people saying that kind of thing. Um, I think you get straight to the core behind the reasoning of that behavior with the quote that I started with today and that Jenny's great book finishes with, which is, so let me give it again, coming up with technical fixes rather than ethical reform, revolution, rebellion. Every time the technology tries to stand in for ethics, we do ourselves a disservice. We deny ourselves the opportunity for growth. I think that's yeah. exactly nailing it for us, unfortunately, as transhumanists. People want a technological fix. They want a, you know, a, a magic pill that solves mm. the problem. They want a magic fix for climate change. They want a magic fix for the suffering of the animals by having, you know, petri dish meat. Uh, mm. so that they can still have their cake and eat it too. They want no sacrifice. Uh, they don't want to make any sacrifice. They don't want to make any personal behavioral changes whatsoever. They just want it easy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thanks for reminding me of the quote. Yeah. No, no, of course. I'm not going to disagree with myself. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. No, I think that's that's very true. Um, and... I mean, there's a few things that come to mind thinking of that. On the one hand, 
vegan veganism is already a, a low tech response, I would say, because this this sense of dependence on animal products, dependence in terms of familiarity, tradition, social conventions, um, taste preferences, which are formed in childhood before we can articulate them. You know, we're given things to eat. We are told animal products are delicious before we can even say if we like it or not. Yeah, All for me, happens. you know, every time when I used to get sick before I went vegan or when I feel down and depressed or for whatever case, even when I had a headache, one of the easy fixes for me was milk and cookies. Hmm. And that immediately takes me to that childhood moment where I had these biscuits, you know, at home and, and a, a glass of milk and I have a... A, you know, a biscuit with the milk and it melts in my mouth and I'm immediately, you know, five-year-old kid eating mm. milk and cookies and everything is safe around me and I'm happy as I can be. Yeah. It, like immediately transports me back in that time. Mm. Yeah, it's enormously powerful. The symbolism of food, the associations of food, emotional significance, absolutely. Um, and I think when you, as I say, go for the the, the low-tech version of veganism, let's say, and you go through that, you know, fantastic process of, of learning how to cook new things, experiment with different uh, plant foods. And, you know, every vegan I know who's gone through this process just comes out of it saying, I had no idea, you know, there's so many delicious foods out there. It's amazing. I eat more widely now. I'm more creative. I enjoy food more. It doesn't make me feel uncomfortable or unwell any longer. All of this. And. So yes, you're doing yourself a, a, an ethical disservice and so forth, but you're also doing doing yourself a disservice because you're, you're just limiting your creativity and your ability to experience the world as a as a human being and all that it has to offer. You know, there is such abundance of um, a cornucopia of uh, of experiences from plant based living that 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 people are largely unaware of because they're socialised into these conventional ways of consuming animal products that are really very limited i find so people who are used to consuming animal products it's often a very a narrow range of things that people cycle through and i think you can see that from the ease with which we communicate about them when we talk about burgers steaks you know whatever it might be there's this quite narrow set of things that people are very familiar with and eat as a matter of routine without Eggs thinking and bacon yeah, exactly. Or in England, bangers and mash. Bangers and mash, fish and chips, as you were saying earlier, yeah, all yeah. of these things. So we have these, yeah, these these emotional, they have emotional resonance and they take us back to childhood and all of this. But at the same time, that's, that is limit, limiting us hugely. And, and that sense of uh, kind of comfort that you can get, I think you can, um, you can do something much, more effective than that as um as a vegan i think through being more aware of the connections that we have with other animals and making those more compassionate and peaceful and so on so the kind of inward looking sense of comfort that you might associate with animal products if you can replace that with creating your own plant-based forms of comfort you know recreating them as a vegan and then thinking, okay, this has given me a wonderful feeling of, you know, it's pleasurable and it's uh, got all the taste that I like. And no one else is being hurt 
for me to in, to be able to enjoy this. You know, it, it just amplifies the pleasure. And to say no one is being hurt is a big claim, of course, because we're aiming to eliminate exploitation and getting there is very difficult because the whole food system is set up to um, almost to produce harm, not just for other animals, but for um, workers in the food system and all these other issues. But having that ambition to look after yourself, and there's nothing wrong with that, in a way which connects you rather than disconnects you. Um, so, so yeah, so going back to my initial reaction of disappointment, um, it is disappointing and I'm, you know, I'm disappointed for people as well that, that you would choose to not go through that just, you know, exciting experience that becoming vegan certainly can be, <clears throat> despite a lot of the problems that we've discussed of social stigma and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's, it's. On a personal level, it's difficult for me to to relate to that <laughs> that <laughs> idea of, of of waiting for someone else to invent something that makes me feel better when I know that I can make myself feel better now <laughs> by going vegan. It's yeah, it's peculiar. Another argument uh, for veganism that I've given, you know, when I did go vegan, probably a year or two afterwards. Well, I, I forget the exact time frame, but sometime afterwards, there were so many people asking me why, like from my fan base, base from my podcast, why did you go vegan? So that I actually had to write a little article and I forget if it was like five or six reasons why I went vegan. And, you know, I gave the classic ones, you know, animal rights, my health, climate change, all of those things. But one of the sort of like usually kind of well, very rarely, if ever mentioned reason to go vegan that I gave there is not a reason that's very popular among vegans themselves. And I've never actually heard it from any non-tech vegans before, but is is the following. So I want to sort of get your kind of input on it. You know, the idea right now is that our claim with respect to animals uh, often comes from this sort of a power perspective. And, and usually it's like an intellectual power perspective, which is to say, we put the claim, we are smarter than you, therefore we can kill you, we can eat you, etc. And my argument was like, look, if we were ever in the reverse situation, let's say we have artificial intelligence coming to exist at some point in the 21st century, or let's say we get in touch with an alien civilization of aliens, and you know we are then the stupid species, we are then the dum-dums, supposedly. We are you know, infinitely stupider than, let's say, artificial general intelligence could be, at least theoretically. And then if they embrace the same logic and reasoning that we have today with respect to our fellows, the animals, then we shouldn't be surprised if they end up treating us exactly the same way. So I argued that one of the reasons why I went vegan is that I want to set a good precedent of how a higher intelligence species can treat, you know, lower intelligence species, but still sentient species as equals and equals and treat them with dignity and respect so that while we have no guarantee that would be the case that we would get that sort of treatment from aliens or AIs, but at least we can set the, 
the president and we can say, uh, because then they can say, well, look, we just do as you did to others, but now you're the stupid one. So we have also the right to kill you and enslave you and play with you for sports and kill you on a mass scale and put you in sort of like concentration camps and, and all of that stuff, right? Uh, and actually you brought in one of your articles that I read the Doctor Who example of how, you know, was it in the 60s or something when there was this episode about aliens hunting humans for their meat for consumption, the doctor actually became vegetarian for a brief period of time. Uh, so, so to me, that's, that's, that's a very legitimate, uh, issue personally, an, an issue that I thought should get some more sort of, uh, uh, friction or, or, or it would spread better among the transhumanists and, and singularitarians, though I don't have any evidence that it actually did. I, I, I may have been optimistic or too optimistic about that. Well, I. I think it's a great idea and it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's a, you know, a, a common idea in science fiction to of course have this notion of aliens coming to earth and treating us as, um, livestock even literally, or in other ways, kind of exploiting humans for, you know, for labor or, or just exterminating us or all of these kinds of ideas. And, and certainly in Doctor Who, it's a very common theme. You often have the character of the Doctor defending human beings from some technologically superior um, alien species um, and having this kind of ethical basis for his defence. And so when um, the, the episode that you mentioned there was from the 1980s, actually, when the Doctor becomes vegetarian and the... The man who wrote the script, Robert Holmes, wrote the script for that episode. He was a vegetarian himself. So clearly he was, um, from that ethical basis, making this connection between the doctors, the character of the doctor's ethical stance and um, following the logical consequences of that stance. If those are his ethics, then of course he would have to be vegetarian. Well, vegan, I would say now. Um, because it doesn't make sense for him to be otherwise. If he's protecting human beings from superior species, why wouldn't he also protect inferior species from human beings? There's no logical reason for that other than that's just the conventional kind of human exceptionalism that we, that we all are socialized into. Um, so yeah, certainly. And I remember years ago when I was involved in the vegan society, there was, um, um, a program of educational um, talks, uh, sc school talks about veganism. So the idea was that speakers would go into schools and explain veganism. And one of the thought experiments you could do with uh, children, uh, with students, is along those kinds of lines. Imagine how you would feel if, you know, an alien species suddenly came down to Earth and said to you, right, all of you, you've got to get under your desks now. You're not allowed to get back out. That's where you live now. You wouldn't do something quite that frightening, depending on the age of the students. But, you know, that general kind of idea, just as a way to encourage empathy. And so, OK, well, this is basically what we do to other animals. Why? Just because we can. There is no ethical basis for it. Um, so, you know, I think that's uh, 
I think it's a persuasive argument and maybe, yeah, you should keep going back to it and keep pushing that argument. I think it's, yeah, it's... I don't think it has gotten enough traction, unfortunately. Mm. I have tried that for the last, let's say, three or four years. It's not gotten enough traction, I, I, I don't think. Part of the reason... Uh, maybe, and I'm speculating here, is that, you know, a lot of people in our community, in transhumanist singularitarian communities, perceive us as this kind of uh, exceptional, uh, exceptionalist, supreme beings, uh, probably the only intelligence that we know in the known universe, mm. uh, the smartest species on the planet, uh, the species that would merge with the machines and, and you know, populate the universe, uh, the, the species that would become gods, uh, you know, so all of these kind of weigh very heavy uh, on our exceptionalism, and therefore they, mm. they really can't make, that's my speculation anyway, they can't make the connection, because we are just so different from all the other animals and everything else around us. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that kind of in, interpretation or extrapolation of transhumanism perhaps is fits really well with with conventional human exceptionalism you know it's amplifying it absolutely so i can see yeah, yeah i Trans can see that it's kind of seductive if you're already of that mindset then this is giving you more of that good stuff for feeling like oh yeah i'm even more powerful as you say um becoming like gods whereas veganism for me is very much about humility exactly. um and seeing humans alongside other animals who are different of course, they have there are plenty of things other animals can do that we can't do. And yes, there are things we can do that other animals can't do as well. But so what? You know, it, it makes no ethical difference. Um, so, yeah, that is an interesting one. And yeah, keep going with it, I would say. <laughs> you What's know, sometimes your... these ideas take time. I hope so. I'm not planning to give up anytime soon, but it's just I've been mm. kind of disappointed. So I've been even sort of debating with myself if it's my fault if i'm making a poor argument uh or if it's the way i'm saying it or if it's just the way it's perceived or wh where is the problem i'm trying to figure out but it's mm. anyway so but i'm not planning to give up so hopefully it would improve over time mm. what what do you say to people who who would tell you well look uh you're expressing a profound misunderstanding of nature uh, and, and, you know, you're talking about your own humility here, but you have to, 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 to express humility and respect the nature ways, the natural ways. And, you know, nature is about tooth and claw and, and about, you know, survival of the fittest. And if you look in, the, in nature, you know, uh, uh, predators consume other animals all the time. And, you know, it just happens so that, you know, we are tigers, we're lions, we're not, we're not herbivores, we're lions. Mm. Yeah, well, and you I know that comes first... from that paleo. You know, we are yeah. Neanderthals, and and or maybe not Neanderthals, but part of us, and and all of our ancestors were these kind of, you know, Cro-Magnons or you know Stone Age mm. people who had to kill all these big animals, the mastodons and mammoths and whatever, and to survive, to eat them, basically. Yeah. So that's normal to us. That's natural. That's who we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think my first response to, always to that is is like, who cares? You know, if it's natural or not, it doesn't mean we have to do it. 
we have other ways of living now. So it's irrelevant to me. Even if that's even if that were true, right? I wouldn't care. Um, we can change the way we want to live. We don't have to do that. I mean, self-evidently, you know, which is which is precisely the point about transhumanism that, unfortunately, again, most people are missing because transhumanism is supposedly all about change, all about evolving to the next step. Mm. Uh, you know, making that progress. Uh, but unfortunately, people get stuck, I think, on the technological end of things and and forego the personal evolution of of, of their sort of intellectual, spiritual, and especially ethical. Uh, capacities and capabilities. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I, I have. I, I've often. Well, I've always had that kind of first response of like, well, so what kind of thing. Um, and if there are elements of our nature, even if that were true, that were harmful, then that's something for us to work on. I think it's not. A, it's not like an excuse um, to do exactly what we want. Um, but also, I think these ideas of who we are, they are social constructs as well. You know, we're, we're cherry picking from the, um, the archaeological record to construct a vision of ourselves that legitimates doing exactly what we've been doing and not changing and staying the same. As you were saying, it's denying yourself this opportunity for, for change, for evolution, for growth or whatever, um, which is, yeah, again, just kind of disappointing. Why, <laughs> why would you want to do that? Um, but also, and this has been pointed out by other people, that there is no kind of homogeneous human history um, as regards to any social practice, whether that be hunting or diet or whatever, because human populations have been dispersed and we've lived in different environments and we've had different diets. It's certainly not the case that all humans were hunting mastodons, you know, <laughs> depends on a particular climate conditions and et cetera, et cetera. So if you're living in a place that has more abundant uh, plant foods available, you're going to eat them. It's an easier way to live. Um, and the the archaeological record of hunting and so forth has been glamorized, but it also tends to preserve better. You know, flint arrowheads preserve better than, what, a pile of excreted fruit seeds. <laughs> we didn't need any tools, <laughs> you know. We didn't need to invent tools to eat an apple or whatever. So there's this kind of fetishization of, of, of nature being violent or human nature being violent and, and stuff that, I, you know, I don't buy it anyway. But as I say, even if it was true, it's like I don't care. It's irrelevant. So, yeah, I'm a bit dismissive of that kind of argument, I suppose. Are you familiar? Because, you know, transhumanism, just like veganism, is, is a very white hat. And there's, you know, all kinds of spectrums and and corners and, and, and parts of that big, 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 big society. And, and so you have people very much on the right, Ayn Randian right, and then you have people who are like, sort of like socialists, communists, anarchists, all kinds. But one of the, the sort of the founder of the UK transhumanist movement, uh, also pretty good philosopher is uh, David Pierce. Uh, so I don't know. Are you familiar with the the hedonistic imperative, sometimes referred to as the abolitionist project? No, no, I don't you're not familiar. So. so David Pierce is 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 the guy who, in the sort of '90s, founded the the UK transhumanist movement, which eventually became became, I think, 
the Global Transhumanist Association. Eventually, it became Humanity Plus. He's been vegetarian, I think, for all his life and vegan for, I don't know, decades probably. Um, and so he goes in the other end of the spectrum with his uh, kind of uh, the hedonistic imperative. And it's like a very kind of a substantial piece of work that he wrote like a couple of decades ago. But basically, if I were to read a little part that the, from the abstract on his website, he says, uh, the hedonistic imperative abstract, he says, this manifesto outlines a strategy to eradicate suffering in all sentient life. The abolitionist project is ambitious, implausible, but technically feasible. It is defended here on ethical utilitarian grounds. Genetic engineering and nanotechnology allow Homo sapiens to discard the legacy wetware of our evolutionary past. Our posthuman successors will rewrite the vertebrate genome, redesign the global ecosystem, and abolish suffering throughout the living world. So, okay. so if I were to say it briefly, uh, I would say he wants to make the whole ecosystem vegan in, in some sense, and he wants to remove all suffering. So the lions would lie with the lambs and we can do all of that through genetic manipulation and genetic engineering so that there's no suffering. And of course, the lions don't remain hungry uh, and, and the, the lambs don't get eaten and all that stuff. What, what is your take? And of course, I'm kind of grossly oversimplifying his work. So I suggest you go and check it out because it's, it's, it's been written probably early 2000s, if not in the 90s. Uh, but what's your take on, on sort of that kind of transhumanist, hardcore, vegan sort of so utopia even some have called it where not only humans have the, the the responsibility of being vegan but we have a responsibility to impose that to and, and as you were saying in the beginning the key part of the def definition of veganism is that you know we diminish suffering and exploitation of animals well he's going one step further and he says it's our responsibility to exterminate, to, to, to completely remove that from the cosmos. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, for me, suf suffering isn't part of the definition of, of veganism. It's uh, a consequence of, of removing exploitation is that a consequence of that is that suffering will be hugely diminished, but not eliminated. I suppose um, pointless suffering at human hands will be eliminated. But that's that's a different thing. I think some people maybe well apparently do approach veganism from a suffering point of view rather than an exploitation point of view. But I approach it from an exploitation point of view. So that's not my imperative. And I mean, my inclination is to think it's going to be a bad idea to interfere. Um, what's got us in this this terrible situation now, where we have a world with more suffering than ever before? If we talk about the volume of creatures who are being exploited and having pain inflicted on them and being killed very young and so forth. That is a result of genetic manipulation, you know, selective breeding to serve our own purposes. And this kind of ambition again, sounds like serving our own purposes. It's itself. It sounds self aggrandizing, you know, becoming gods, giving ourselves the power to change all other life, not only ourselves. Um, 
and of course, a lot of people, I'm not a philosopher, but I think a lot of philosophers will argue that suffering um, is of a value. You know, it's, it's suffering is the, the context against which you value not suffering. Okay. Of, of reaching a state of um, peace or safety or survival or, and more than that, empathy. You know, being able to empathize with the sufferings of others is is crucially important to making us compassionate. Um, and this is just, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head because this is the first time I've encountered this idea. Um, so I've not had time to think this through very well. But these, these are the first kind of thoughts that come to my mind about it. So, it, yeah, it's not something that sounds especially attractive to me. Well, I, I sympathize with you, even though I'm I'm vegan like you are, and like David Pierce's, uh, I have more concerns about his idea than than uh, than. I mean, I, I'm more like where you are, to be honest with you. However, I I just would recommend you go check it out because it's it's still a very impressive and and as he says sure. in the beginning in the abstract, implausible, uh, but but technically possible uh, possibility on mere utilitarian philosophical grounds. Mm. Um, so, and he lays down a whole philosophical framework for it where he addresses that issue of suffering, by the way, if I remember, even though it's been now probably 10 years since I last read it. So maybe I should reread it too. <laughs> but um, Matthew, it's been now almost two hours since we started mm. our conversation. So um, I wanna ask you, is there, maybe the last two or three questions here before we, we have to let you go. But is there any other issue that I didn't ask you about pertaining to veganism and perhaps any issue that you can see how veganism can illuminate our understanding perhaps of technology or artificial intelligence or transhumanism uh, or any other important thing that you want to bring to our attention that I didn't ask you about? Um, I'm not sure really. I, I suppose one thing that, that maybe I'd like to emphasize is, um, how important it is that we pay attention to social structures in all of these kinds of debates and the context within which we're living and, and thinking and having these ideas, um, and the constraints which many, many humans are under as well as many other animals, of course. Um, and how democratic these ideas are and where they're coming from demographically, you know, geographically and so forth. I think that's always important to bear in mind. So one of the, I suppose, one of the things that sociology brings, not me personally, but as a discipline to the study of veganism is this attention to social structure and trying to get us away from the idea that these are purely personal individual decisions so we we have our own biographical stories of becoming vegan or not and so forth but they all happen within the social context within the historical context and we're always connected to those contexts through our decisions and our decisions are shaped by those contexts so that's something i really want to emphasize because i think sometimes i'm not talking about you or our conversation even but just generally within discussions around veganism in particular there tends to be a focus on on it being an individual decision. Do you go vegan or not? And judgment can come come into that. And that's something that I, I think is a, 
uh, almost a dead end, really, or, or, or a poor strategic choice, let's say, to make it all about individual conversion. I think our, our vegan stories depend so much on the context. And maybe that's something that I should reflect back on in terms of my own story, because exactly. I did very much narrate it as a personal story, but I was in different contexts. And that had a huge impact on my sense of my ability to be vegan, my knowledge about it, all of those things were very heavily contextual. Um, and I certainly never want to present vegans as in any way kind of heroic or superior or some kind of more enlightened subspecies or something. That's not what it's about. What I'm interested in is a, as a sociologist in particular is how do we create the social conditions within which veganism becomes normal, default, um, the way we raise our children, the way we organize society so that it just, it's just what people do. Um, so in terms of, you know, the issues of artificial intelligence and so forth, I think, I mean, I was, I was really pleased when you brought up the Doctor Who um, uh, chapter that I worked on with uh, Kate, my partner. Because a lot of what I suppose puts, puts me off ideas such as transhumanism is from an uneducated perspective, I have to say, I'm in no way an expert in these things. I've only just kind of skirted around the edges of them. But what dissuades me from getting more involved and reading more is this sense that it sounds like more of the same kind of stuff that's got us into the problems we're in now in terms of human exceptionalism. And that's what really worries me. So the very word transhumanism even, I find it a bit unsettling. So it, it, I'm, I'm not, I'd, from the perspective I'm coming from, I don't feel invited into that world and I don't feel curious to find out more. I feel more kind of alienated. If you, if you follow me. Well, part of the reasoning why in the early 2000s transhumanism was kind of a little bit abandoned is a word and, 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 and the movement got renamed Humanity Plus. Right? Yeah. So, so that's part, part, you're touching on some of those issues, but there are many right. issues behind that, but that's part of why like rebranding happened and, and from transhumanism, it became more of a humanity plus. And now in the last few years, there's been kind of the, the backwards kind of movement. I think more people are kind of going back to that original word, transhumanism and trying to, um, so the, the older strategy was change the, the word to change the brand, to change what people kind of, uh, sort of how people uh, emotionally react to it. But now people are coming up with a different strategy, which is like, oh, let's just change the meaning of the word transhumanism. So that will change the emotional response that people are predisposed mm -hmm. to get to it. So there's like different strategies. But that's sure. part of the reasoning why people rebranded re it to Humanity Plus back in the day. Mm. Oh, that sounds even worse to me. Humanity plus sounds even worse because <laughs> it's humanity that's the problem. You know, the way, the way humanity has con constructed ourselves as superior is that is the problem, <laughs> which um, I'm and keen that to originates get. in the Enlightenment and humanism yeah. is a movement, oh, yeah, of even, right? Of course, yeah. So, and and you you come up against this very much in sociology as a discipline, as uh, um a discipline that's all about human beings. This is the way it constructed itself. So as sociologists working on, you know, critical animal studies or working on veganism or, or having any kind of 
concern for other animals is you're you're working uphill straight straight away and i think that's why it's taken quite a long time for us to make progress where now thankfully some of us are able to work on these ideas professionally i mean for many years for me this was just something i did in my spare time it wasn't part of my paid job and now finally it is uh, for which i'm very grateful and that means there are many more opportunities that open up mm-hmm. but but yeah this you're absolutely right since the enlightenment well even before in different ways on different philosophical bases but since the enlightenment theological um, mainly right yeah theological bases yeah absolutely um but since the enlightenment the, the process of course intensified with the the connection with uh, industrialism and and so forth and all the impacts that's had on, on other animals um so yeah so i guess that's why i'm <laughs> distrustful is not quite the word but anything that seems to be centering the human even if it's a different kind of human i'm straight away thinking oh hang on let's just step back a bit and and think about others rather than ourselves how could how can we um you know settle back down into patterns of relations with other creatures with our planet with our environment in the broadest possible sense that are that are less uh, toxic you know, and in defense of transhumanism, there have been a lot of uh, vegetarians at the sort of top level of transhumanism uh, or the founding uh, sort of circles. And uh, there's there's the idea of also of speciesism, which is a different form of racism, uh, which vegans can very easily associate with. And, and so uh, in transhumanism also, the idea is that, you know, we shouldn't judge species uh, based on their stratum or whether they're biological or mechanical or silicon based. And we shouldn't judge them, you know, uh, because that's a form of racism. So, so there's this also these emancipatory kind of movement uh, or parts of the movement, you know, features that are also happening in, in defense of, of transhumanism, I should sure. Not yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to um, upset or offend your listeners with my ignorance about transhumanism. So you know, no, no. As I said, it's a very complicated movement. Uh, mm. It's a very big, big movement in the sense that not big in terms of size, but but in terms of ideological kind of lineage. As I said, we have very strong Ayn Randian kind of uh, wing, and there's a very strong sort of a socialist anarchist wing. So and that that tension has been there since the beginning, mm. uh, and that's kind of more also a divide between continental or European transhumanists, uh, and and also American North American transhumanists, if you will, in in some way. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but anyway, Matthew, we've been talking for two over two hours now. So mm. where can people find more about you and your work if they're interested to do so? Sure. Um, Well, you can find my profile on the Open University website. If you just type in Matthew Cole, Open University on a search engine, you'll find um, a list of my publications there. Um, One thing I'd I'd like to mention, if if you'll let me, is the um, uh, a course, a free course that's available on OpenLearn, which is the Open University's free learning platform. Um, And that's a course based on my work. Um, like an introductory course to uh, social scientific approaches to um, harms against non-human animals. 
Um, I'm trying to remember the, the title of it. I really should have written this down in preparation. Um, well, if you send me the link after the interview, I would link to it straight from, from our conversation. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, so as I say, that's a free, that. a free learning resource that anyone can access and, and you'll learn more about my work through that as well. Yeah. Fantastic. So, okay. So we come here to perhaps the most important part, the, the one single most valuable or most important takeaway that you want our listeners and viewers to take away from this conversation with you today. What would you like that to be? What do you want to send us with? Um, I think it would be something that I've come back to many times, which is um, how important humility is to veganism and how important it is to think about veganism in terms of um, letting go of our presumed right to dominate others, our presumed right to exploit others. Um, and I think that is really, really crucial as the counterweight to the anti-vegan discourse that surrounds us, especially when veganism is, is portrayed as elitism. You know, veganism in terms of its founding ideas is the opposite of elitism, the very opposite of it. And yes, there are problems in the vegan movement of, um, you know, it being dominated by elites, perhaps professional elites, but that's not what the ideals of veganism are about. So that's really important, I think. Um, and for me, being vegan is a process of letting go of that sense of my own importance as a human being over and above other species and just kind of feeling more relaxed about my place as um you know a fellow earthling if you like a fellow life form amongst this huge diversity um yeah wow i would say you know that's also true or it could be said and it should be true also about transhumanism by the way uh, because I think humility is crucial for transhumanism too, uh, even though, uh, you know, there is also a lot of elitism associated with transhumanism just as much as it's uh, with veganism. And it's mostly, you know, upper, upper middle class white guys who are transhumanists, uh, with some notable exceptions, of course. Uh, and also we have this kind of... Uh, idea that I should have mentioned earlier about animal uplift and whether we have, you know, obligations or responsibility to uh, provide more intellectual capacity to other species other than human species, right? So there's that very strong movement part of the uh, transhumanist movement, which is the animal up uplift movement or, or idea anyway. Uh, so I totally agree with you that that humility is something that can serve us in 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 veganism and in transhumanism and in philosophy and in everything else we do <laughs> every day of yeah. our life. So yeah. so uh, I think that's a very useful advice. It's it's an advice that the Stoics have given us and could have given us, but they did give us you know twenty five hundred years ago almost. So uh, I I know that you try to live by that advice every day i try to do so myself um, and and i hope our conversation uh, makes other people consider bringing that into their own life a lot more predominantly 
So Matthew Cole, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 